The Wake Knot by Robert McMinn Chapter 2 Meet the Family A wild night was that in Bourne. All the folk, free and unfree, man and woman, were out on the streets, asking the meaning of those terrible shrieks, followed by a more terrible silence. Charlie had loaded the fridge with the remains of the food she and Meg had carried with them on the journey. In their haste to make good time, they hadn't felt like stopping at a supermarket on the way, and anyway, there really hadn't been the room in the Peugeot for bags of shopping. They ended up with the snacks, crisps, crackers, chocolate they'd kept in the car but hadn't opened, and a jar of olives that appeared to have been left in the kitchen cupboard by a previous resident. Although Barb had pointed out its availability, they had nothing fit to cook on the barbecue, and neither of them was in the mood for anything too involved in the small kitchen. They suppered on the remaining baguette and some ham they'd picked up in the service station, didn't even bother to sit down to eat. They also considered opening the bottle of red wine that had been left as a welcome gift by the owners, but then Meg suggested they go calling on the guy with the bike. Maybe he has some food, she said, adding, he looked quite interesting, don't you think? He was checking you out, you mean? He was checking both of us out, I reckon. Anyway, I liked his face, and I liked how grumpy he was with that bratty kid from next door. Charlie had to smile at that, although she also had to wonder at the personality whose first priority after a long drive was to wash his bike and then go for a ride on it. Still, she thought, I'm champing at the bit to get a look at that church. We all have our obsessions. He seemed very sporty, she pondered. Bit of a mammal. So he's fit, countered Meg. Could be worse. What's he supposed to wear on a bike anyway? Suit and tie? He's on holiday, he can wear what he wants. Come on, let's go. We might only have a few days to get acquainted. So they grabbed the bottle of red wine and two remaining bags of crisps. On a whim, Charlie fetched the jar of green olives from the cupboard. They turned out to be stuffed with almonds, which was at least intriguing. They walked around the front of the house and through the door that opened onto the staircase up to what Barb had called the granny flat. Meg tapped on the door with some diffidence. Charlie arched an eyebrow at her. Where had the confidence gone all of a sudden? Hello? came a voice from inside. Charlie took this as a signal to go in and reached down to the door handle, pushing it open even as the bike guy was walking over to it. He stopped when he saw them. A little nonplussed, she thought. It struck Charlie that it was slightly un-British of them to be so sociable. He had changed his clothes since his bike ride. He was wearing a pair of tailored shorts, deck shoes, and a white linen shirt with the sleeves rolled up. She admired his brown upper arms as they emerged from the sleeves. His cyclist tan made it obvious that he'd spent a lot of time on his bicycle already this summer. Charlie and Meg had changed out of their road clothes too. Charlie was wearing a knee-length summer dress and espadrilles. Meg was barefoot in black jeans and a plain black t-shirt. She seemed to lack a proper summer wardrobe and Charlie felt a stab of guilt, wondering if Meg resented her divorce money. Thought we'd say hi, she said, holding up the wine. Up close he seemed around five years younger than the forty or so she had originally estimated. Meg was right. He did look fit, and he had an interesting face. I see you've got a head start on us. Got a corkscrew? 
We bought crisps and olives. Meg on cue brandished the family-sized bags and a jar of green olives stuffed with almonds. Um, yeah, he said, turning to the kitchen counter where there was already an open bottle of wine and a full glass. It was early to be half a bottle in, thought Charlie, but he was on holiday. But let's pour out the rest of mine first, he said. I haven't got much to eat, I'm afraid. I need to go shopping. Hiding their disappointment, the two women followed him into the flat, Meg pushing the door closed behind them. Bike Guy found two more mismatched glasses in the cupboard and poured a generous quantity of his wine into each. Handing them over, he said, I'm Chris. Marsh. Charlie took one glass in her left and held out her right. Charlie Stone, she said as he took her hand. That's Charlie with a Y. And this is Meg with a G. Meg, already drinking from her glass, held out her own hand, looking up at him from underneath her short black fringe. The confidence was back, Charlie noticed, now they were in the flat. Meg Camo, she said, giving the third syllable of her surname a little Philip. Don't I know you? Charlie looked sharply at her. She replayed their conversation about him earlier. Meg hadn't mentioned that she recognised Chris, just that he looked interesting. She wondered what Meg was up to. I don't know, he said, shaking her hand. Charlie couldn't work out whether he was embarrassed, confused or what. I was just about to put on some music, shall I? Meg, oblivious to this evasion, pursued the subject. You look familiar for some reason. Have you been on TV? Not really, said Chris with a glance away. Charlie wondered why he was lying. She had years of experience at spotting liars. It came with the job. He now concentrated on his phone, paired it with the portable Bluetooth speaker and hit play in the music app. Something that sounded suspiciously like Frank Sinatra came from the speaker. So you're on your own, Chris? asked Charlie with a furious glance at Meg. What are you playing at? Meanwhile, Meg was pulling faces at the Bluetooth speaker. Yeah, came down for a bit of cycling in the sun. You? Chris unscrewed the lid of the olives and poured the brine through the fingers of his hand into the sink. It seemed a practice move, the kind of thing you do when you're comfortable in the kitchen. Charlie reflected that she herself would have spent time looking for a sieve in the cupboard. Chris hadn't even hesitated. He poured the contents of the jar into a cereal bowl and dried his hand on a tea towel. Considering he'd only really arrived at the same time as them, he seemed very much at home. Long walks and, you know, some wine, I expect, said Charlie with a smile. Something special about cycling around here? Have you been here before? Not really, he said. Actually, the opposite. Don't think there are any epic Tour de France climbs in this region. I was really hoping for somewhere quiet to ride without too many mountains. I think I've been in this region before camping some years ago, but not this bit of it. Are we bothering you? said Charlie, suddenly sensitive to the idea that he was looking for peace and quiet and aware of the awkwardness of Meg's interrogation. Oh no, it's just quiet roads I'm after, he said. Didn't want to be dealing with silly competitiveness out there, that's all. Mostly mine, I have to say. I'm a bit of a Strava addict and I tend to take stupid risks if I think people are watching. Starve, said Meg. Strava. It's an app, corrected Charlie. Measures your speed against other people using the same app. 
She had investigated a case the year before. A cyclist had died up in the wolds after trying to beat a record on a straight downhill section into a village. A car, pulling out of a parking spot, had ended the attempt. And his life. The Strava segment had been named How Fast Can You Go? A challenge to idiots everywhere. There was an awkward silence, filled by Sinatra singing about looking down a lonesome road. Charlie assessed Chris. He was tall, wire thin, with very short, light brown hair and blue eyes. His tanned face showed laughter lines around the eyes, and there was also something in his posture, a weight of concern on his shoulders. Stop being such a copper, she told herself. You're supposed to be on holiday. So I'm sorry not to have much to eat, Chris said, breaking the silence. Just a bit of fig jam, but no bread left now. He shrugged his shoulders and waved vaguely at the kitchen counter, the fridge, the cupboards. At least these olives are nice and salty, important when it's so hot. We're the same. No food, I mean. Not that we're salty. Let's pour these crisps into a bowl and get pissed on an empty stomach, said Charlie, and hope we'll find a shop open tomorrow. Barb said there was an intermarché in Riverack, said Meg. Should be open till noon, and I am a bit salty, actually, she grinned. Early closing will mean getting up before noon, Charlie groaned. They moved over to the sofa with both bottles of wine and the olives and the crisps. It was still light outside, but the sun was setting somewhere out of sight on the other side of the road. The fields they could see from the window were washed in golden light. Have you met any of the other guests, said Meg. No, I've mostly been in here, reading, Chris said. I saw the family of four. I didn't see the last person to arrive. Oh, she was on her own. We didn't speak to her either, Meg shrugged. Spoke to the Morgans, though, she made a face. He was a bit of a tool, said Charlie, picking up on Meg's facial expression. She was all right. The girl didn't say anything. The kid was a kid. Why was he at all? asked Chris, frowning. Maybe he was wondering what Charlie and Meg would be saying about him behind his back. Oh, he's some kind of financial gobshite, Charlie said, already complaining that he was missing important business meetings, which must make his wife feel great. He was complaining about signal strength and hunting for the Wi-Fi password when we spoke to them. It was probably on the fridge, like mine was, said Chris, glancing over to the kitchen area. Oh, I'm sure it was, said Charlie. We think the wife, Paola, hid it from him, added Meg. Paola? I know. She's Spanish, we think. Oh, a blonde? Like Chris clearly was, Charlie wondered what proportion of the Spanish population were blonde. Don't think it's her natural colour, said Meg with a sly smile. I mean, looking at the daughter's colouring. She's a rubia from a bottle, agreed Charlie. Probably his idea, said Meg. No, said Charlie, she's just trying to blend in. Probably in their circles she gets treated as some kind of exotic. Chris was looking from Charlie to Meg in fascination as this conversation continued for a few minutes and was then clearly blindsided when Meg turned the topic of conversation back to him. I'm sure I've seen you somewhere, she said, reaching for the second bottle of wine and the corkscrew. What is it you do, Chris? A pause. I'm a journalist, he said, looking rueful. He was probably aware that this wasn't the most popular profession. 
Charlie realised what Meg must be driving at. Television journalist? asked Charlie. No, not really. Yes, I have been interviewed on... Well, I've been on being interviewed. Newsnight, said Meg, her face brightening. That's when I saw you. You were on talking about that girl, the one who was killed playing rugby. What was this? said Charlie, turning to Meg. Since when do girls play rugby? She scoured her brain, trying to remember such a case. That was the point, wasn't it, Chris? Some school with progressive ideas about unisex sports and the worst possible outcome? She got crushed, didn't she, when a scrum collapsed? Chris didn't answer. Charlie frowned, wondering why nobody at work had talked to her about this. Surely there had been some police involvement. She looked at Chris's face. He was clearly devastated to be reminded of this case. Something going on there. She turned her attention to Meg, widened her eyes to show the whites, willing her to drop the subject. So then, what happened? Meg continued, but then, with a glance at Charlie, stopped. There was another awkward silence. Sinatra finished trudging down the road in a subdued way, and in a similar mood began explaining how he'd got it bad. Charlie wondered at Chris's musical tastes. Still, it was fine as background music, and it looked as if the evening was going to keep coming back to that note of subdued awkwardness. You couldn't force a light mood. This was a shame, Charlie thought. There was something about Chris she was starting to like. When he had prevaricated earlier about being on television, he was surely only trying to avoid this particular topic, which for some reason was painful for him to think about. Give him a chance, she thought. Don't allow your suspicious nature to rule your life. The music coming from the small speaker changed again, Polite audience applause and then Sinatra's voice. Charlie knew this one. So, how long have you two been together? Chris asked, abruptly changing the subject. Charlie concealed a smile with her glass of wine and then realised exactly what it was he was asking. She looked at Meg. The awkward silence returned briefly, but then they both exploded with laughter. Chris looked from one to the other again, bewildered. We're not a couple, Chris, said Charlie, although we're okay if people think we are, if that means men don't hit on us all the time. We just work together. Well, it was almost the truth. Meg was a civilian, but they worked in the same general area, on the same side. Oh, I just got some money from my divorce and asked Meg if she wanted to come and help me spend some of it. Oh, Meg was still laughing, perhaps to cover some embarrassment. Then she said, Actually, I did wonder, the way you were looking at us, being cool about it, not flirting, I started to wonder if you were... She started to chuckling again. Now, now, Megan, said Charlie, just because some guy doesn't immediately try to chat you up doesn't mean he's automatically gay. No, no, I know, she said, embarrassed now at being thought conceited. She drank from her glass. Chris just appeared relieved that the subject had shifted away from the tragic rugby game and whatever it was, it reminded him of. Perhaps the dead girl had been a relative. Charlie watched as Chris and Meg relaxed together. Chris asked her what she did and Meg was telling him about the thankless and poorly paid work of a CPS solicitor. That Chris didn't then ask her what she did meant that he probably thought Charlie was another lawyer. She didn't step in to correct this misapprehension. 
People only got uncomfortable around her when they discovered she was a copper. She grinned to herself. A copper, a lawyer and a journalist. Next door, some kind of finance guy. Who would Paola or the fourth person have to be to match them in the unpopularity stakes? Estate agent? They finished the snacks and the wine. The music continued to shuffle through Chris's playlist. Frank was riding high in April, shot down in May, then went on a sentimental journey. It was all very relaxing, and Charlie was even starting to enjoy the music. Meg's eyes kept rolling, however, but for once she was too polite to complain. The second bottle of wine was opened. Taking her first sip, Charlie resolved to look for more of those green olives stuffed with almonds when they went shopping. It got dark outside, and Chris rose to pull the window closed, saying it was to prevent insects from coming in. Meg flirted a little, and Charlie watched Chris react to her. No doubt, Megan had an incredible body, but Chris seemed wary of her now, that concern or fear behind his eyes. As they were going down the stairs from the flat and back around to their own part of the cottage, Charlie, heedful of their voices carrying at night, whispered, Sorry to cut you off earlier, but did you see his face? Only when you gave me that look. Thanks for stopping me. Obviously I had my foot in my mouth at that point. And what on earth was that music? I liked it. A bit. Do you remember what he was talking about on Newsnight? No. I don't think he was on as a relative or anything, but they were asking him something about it. I was barely paying attention. You know me, I've just got a memory for faces. Charlie held the key in the lock of their cottage door. How long did he say he was staying? Same as us. Two weeks. Why? asked Meg. Maybe we'll get more out of him when he's had a chance to relax. Once a copper, she thought.